بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير رب الشرح صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والشكر لله we have finally reached module 11 which represents the final module of this Fardain program that we initiated I can't even remember when it was November okay so we're but we're over a year aren't we almost two years subhanallah yeah subhanallah two years almost so this is module 11 and just to do a bit of a recap just to see what we've covered so far and see where we are right now in the very beginning when we started this program i began with the intention of covering everything that is conceivably obligatory for Muslims to know in this day and age. The Farda'ain knowledge, as we've mentioned many times before, in our Islamic tradition, there have been many time periods where scholars would compile books or poems where they gather what is considered basic Farda'in knowledge that would then be taught to the communities. Those poems or those books would be studied and memorized and they gained wide acclaim. Uh, for example, one that is still memorized and still taught to this very day in North Africa is Al-Murshid Al-Mu'in by Imam Abdul Wahid Ibn Ashir, Rahimahullah. Imam Ibn Ashir, he wrote that basic primer covering the basics of belief, the basics of how the deen is transmitted and the legal rulings, and then the basics of purification, prayer, fasting, zakat, and hajj. After that, he went into matters of the heart. And that text is a very basic text. And of course, it does omit areas that could also conceivably be obligatory for us to know. But he gave us the core, right? The other things that we've covered that aren't included in books like that, such as matters pertaining to marriage or divorce or uh, child rights of family, those things are not mentioned in books like that, but they encompass the foundations. So the goal was to cover everything that is conceivably obligatory on individual Muslims to know. And we began very much like Ibn Ashir did and like those before him and after him, in that we covered the basics of Islamic theology, what we believe regarding Allah Ta'ala, what we believe regarding the prophets and messengers, what we believe regarding the matters of the unseen. After that, in the second module, we were talking about the transmission of Islam. Not because it's fard'ain to really know the details of how the deen was transmitted from the Sahaba to the second generation, to the third, to the great Imams and Fuqaha up until our time, but so that we understand where we take our knowledge from, where we learn our deen. And that was establishing the basis for following qualified scholarship in matters of law. From there, we went into module three, which is about the fiqh, the ritual acts of worship. And so we spoke about uh, purification and uh, tahara, wudu, ghusl, all of these things. And from there, we went into the fiqh of salat. And from there, the fiqh of fasting. Although we did shift it a little bit because of Ramadan, we covered fasting before Salat, I believe, because it was so close to Ramadan. But we covered fasting. Then we covered the fiqh of zakat. When is it obligatory and how does one pay it? And all of those details. 
Then we talked about when the Hajj is obligatory. Uh, we didn't cover the monastic of the Hajj itself. Because as we said, it's not obligatory on a Muslim to know how to carry out the rites of the Hajj until that obligation is upon them and they are able to do it. But before they're able to do it, the bare minimum they must know about the Hajj is when it becomes obligatory on them. After that, once it has become obligatory on them and they're able, then they must learn the monastic. So we didn't cover the monastic, although someone did email suggesting that we go over it. And maybe we will at some point. Maybe during the Hajj season we can do that just as a primer for those who have yet to go but plan on going. Um, inshallah, we can do that. After that, we went into the mu'amalat, the interactions. So we talked about ibadah, the fiqh that details ibadah, ritual worship. And then the fiqh that details our interactions with other human beings. And we talked about marriage and divorce and family rights, the, wives of, the rights of husbands and wives and children and relatives. We talked about, what else did we talk about? Parents, the rights of parents. We talked about mu'amalat in money matters. We talked about business transactions. We talked about the basics of financial matters. And what happened after that? There's so many modules. Oh, right. We did, then we did the halal and the haram. And that was covering the halal and the haram from the tongue, the eyes, the ears, the hands, the feet, the stomach, and the private parts. And that was all about the outward aspects of the, of the halal and the haram. Really it was the haram, because we said the default is everything is halal, minus a couple of exceptions. So that was the external haram things that we talked about, that every Muslim should know about. Then we went into the things that are haram internally. And that was our module 10, going into ihsan, the third component of the deen and the hadith of Jibreel, the spiritual component where we talked about the diseases of the hearts and how they arise, what they are, and how they're removed. After that, we went into the positive spiritual qualities in the heart that a person must cultivate. And alhamdulillah, we ended on that in the previous session. So here we are now. We're at module 11. Module 11 is... I was going to call it Aqidah 102 because a lot of it has to do with matters of belief and not practice or the things that we would do with our body. But I decided to change the name to miscellaneous matters simply because it is miscellaneous. It is a number of different issues, most of which are, or half of which at least, are modern issues that Muslims living in the modern world need to know about in some measure of detail, perhaps more than people in the past would have needed to know. And so, in no particular order, we're going to start tonight with one of those miscellaneous matters, and it is on the topic of salvation. Now, who knows the Arabic word for salvation? Najat, right? Najat is the Arabic word for salvation, to be saved, right? Uh, salvation is, there's another word that is used in the sciences. You know, you have theology, epistemology, prophetology, all the ologies. You have soteriology, which is the study of what happens to people or their fate in the hereafter, depending on their faith or lack thereof. So particularly what we're going to talk about is the idea of, what we call salvific exclusivity. It's kind of hard to say. Salvific exclusivity. And if we were to put that in Arabic, we would say, uh, that salvation in the hereafter is limited to those who are upon the path of Islam. That Islam is the only path of salvation in the hereafter. And that there are not any other paths that a person can take in this day and age that will lead them to Allah and that will deliver them and give them salvation in the hereafter. So everyone already knows this. 
This is a very basic matter. It is what the scholars say, المعلوم من الدين بالضرورة It is known to be from the religion of Islam by necessity. But there are different voices out there who challenge this idea and believe that whatever you are, whatever religion you follow, it's all okay as long as you're a good person. As long as you're good to other people, then you'll be saved in the hereafter. And we want to clarify that that's not actually true. And that to hold that belief is actually quite dangerous to one's iman. Because it entails denying the very clear-cut verses of the Qur'an and the very clear-cut definitive statements of the Prophet wasallam. So let's summarize it first and then go through the points. All previous heavenly religions, as they are called, are abrogated. What do we mean by heavenly religions? This is a term applied to the shara'i' or the ways and paths revealed by Allah Ta'ala to the previous prophets. So the sharia, the way within the deen of Prophet Musa salam, was valid for his people. The way of Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam alayhi salam, was valid for his people and his followers. But with the advent of the Prophet wasallam and the revelation of the Qur'an and the completion of this sharia, this sharia, this deen is nasikha. It is abrogating the previous heavenly dispensations, the, pre- the previous heavenly religions as we call them. Likewise, Belief in and affirmation of the message of the Prophet ﷺ is a condition for salvation in the hereafter. A person cannot say, say oh, I believe in one God. He is alone and without any partner. I only worship Allah. I only worship God. They can't say that while not also acknowledging with assent to Muhammadun Rasulullah. And likewise, it is disbelief, it is kufr, to believe that other religions constitute valid paths to God that are acceptable in His sight and paths to salvation in the hereafter. Now, we are not talking about the fate of people in the past nations before the Prophet received the Qur'an. We're not talking about the past nations. We're not talking about the people in between Sayyidina Isa and Sayyidina Muhammad We're not talking about them. We're talking about now. We're talking about from the time Rasulullah was given the Qur'an and given this divine message until the Day of Judgment. All those in the past, Tilka ummatun qadakhadat. Those are nations gone past, right? They have what they earned, and for us is what we earned. We're not talking about them. We're talking about what we believe regarding the valid path of salvation now for people after the time of the Prophet ﷺ until the Day of Judgment. So it is fardain for Muslims to know these basic points and to believe in them and affirm them. And I don't think anyone can test this. But we want to look at it in some detail so that we have basira, we have insight into this matter. So what we're going to do is simply go through a set of different sets of ayat of Qur'an that affirm these points, a couple of hadith, and just a couple of statements from the great scholars of the past who affirmed an ijma'ah or consensus that this is the truth, that this is the only valid path for salvation. Now, and when we're talking about this, before we go into it, as we just said, we're not talking about those in the past nations or past periods uh, before the Prophet Likewise, we're not talking about the fate of any particular individual now who dies 
having either heard the message of Islam properly or heard it improperly or not hearing it at all. Their fate in the hereafter is between them and their Lord. We're just talking about a very basic point of aqidah that we have to affirm as Muslims. Before we go into those verses, I want to talk a little bit about religion. What is religion? Because a lot of the people who have misconceptions about salvation or Islam being the only valid path of salvation, a lot of their misconceptions stem from their misconception about what religion is in the first place. They have a very postmodern, fuzzy way of understanding what religion is and what it's for. So, as inshallah, practicing Muslims, we tend to think of religion as a set of doctrines and beliefs and practices. It's seen as what we believe, what we profess, and what we do, what we act on. But that's not the case for everybody. Right? You've seen these commercials where they put token Muslims on commercials to advertise. And it's just Islam as a kind of cultural accessory, you know. So for some people, unfortunately, religion is nothing more than what their family calls itself. They just happen to be Muslim. Or they happen to be Jewish. They happen to be Christian. Right? And if they were born into another family, they would be a different religion altogether. Right? For some people, religion is basically defined by what they don't eat. I'm a Muslim because I don't eat pork. That becomes the sole determining factor of what makes them other. Right? They could do all manner of, of, of degeneracy and corruption, but they won't eat pork. That is the red line for them. It's as if they believe if they ate pork, they become kafir. Right? That's it for them. There are some people like this. For some people, religion is just the holidays they and their family celebrate. Oh, we celebrate Eid, so we're Muslims. But they have no connection to the deen outside of that. That's how some people look at religion, just as some celebrations, just as a few do's and don'ts, particularly not eating pork, or just what they happen to call themselves. Now, in English, this word religion is fraught with some controversy because when they talk about the word religion and its etymology, they, they don't really agree about where the word comes from. Some say that it comes from the Latin word radigari, which means to bind or connect, which is, inter- interestingly, that's the same meaning for aqidah, right? Aqidah what we call belief, comes from aqada, you know, to bind or to knot, to tie. So, religari means to bind or to connect. Uh, Others have said that religion, as a word, comes from religio, which means a code of conduct or the proper performance of certain rituals or rites. That is the linguistic meaning of religion. But there is a postmodern understanding of religion that has been developing for a very long time. And now some sociologists who study this phenomena have given it a term. They call it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Right? Three big words. And we'll get to that inshallah. What do we say religion is? What's the word for religion in Arabic, by the way? Deen. Deen is a very complex word in Arabic, and it's very rich in meaning. We usually translate it as religion, and that's not an inaccurate translation, but it doesn't give the full breadth of meaning. What is the city of the Prophet ﷺ called? Medina. It is the city of civilization par excellence. Because deen, from that you also have the notion of dain, this kind of life debt of a transaction. It is a transaction between you and your creator, right? What is the day of judgment called? Yawmuddin. It doesn't mean the day of religion. It means the day in which debts are fulfilled. 
right? That life debt. Now the Prophet ﷺ has also defined what deen is in a, a very famous hadith. He says, تَرَكْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْمَحَجَّةِ الْبَيْضَاءِ لَيْلُهَا كَنَهَارِهَا لَا يَزِيهُ عَنْهَا إِلَّا هَارِكَ I have left you on the middle of a bright and well-trodden path whose night is like its day. The day and the night are alike. No one strays from it after me except that he is ruined. So this mahajja is a well-trodden path. You're not going at it alone. It's been tread by many before you. That's why it's called a well-trodden path. In Arabic, the well-trodden path is also called at-tariq al-mu'abbad. Mu'abbad. And from that word, we have ibadah, right? That notion of humility. The, the weeds, the rocks, the grass, everything is now removed from that trail because so many people have walked on it. Now it's clear you can walk on that trail. So it is the mahajja bayda. It is also known as the sirat al-mustaqim. And in Arabic, the sirat, in the, in the classical meaning, it's not a sirat that is so narrow that you easily fall off. It is a wide path. Not only that, we see in this hadith that he describes it as al-bayidah. It is bright and luminous. Layluha kanahariha. Its night is like its day. It's not dark. It's not opaque. It's not ambiguous, it's not murky. And when he says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Layluha Kanahariha, its night is like its day, it is the path for good times and bad times. It is the path that you follow when things are going well and when things are not going so well. In all matters. So if we take this hadith as our definition of Islam, it means that Islam is to attain salama, well-being, through and wholeness, through willingly surrendering and submitting to the Creator. So we say that Islam, in its principial sense, in its broadest sense, it is the only possible relationship that the relative can have with the absolute. That's it. So this is how deen is described by the Prophet So what about that new, the new fangled term that they have coined about the modern conception of religion? They, some sociologists and researchers have researched modern conceptions of religion, particularly among young people. And they coined this term called moralistic therapeutic deism. And I think it's important to talk about this just a, just a bit before we look at how we view salvific exclusivity or salvation being only in Islam. There was a survey in 2005. And in that survey, they surveyed uh, American teens, asking them about their conception of religion and different faiths and so on. And these American teens had, had different religions. And they found in this research that young Americans tended to share a very common understanding of religion. And the authors called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let's unpack that a little bit. When they say moralistic, what they mean is that religion is just about being good. It's being nice to people. That's it. The moral compass is only pointing towards being a pleasant individual, being nice to people, holding the door open for them, you know, being nice to them, saying good morning at Starbucks, right? Being nice. It's therapeutic as well, meaning it is something that helps you to feel good about yourself. It helps you to feel warm and fuzzy. It's basically sentimentalism. And... Theologically, it is a kind of deism. Does anyone know what deism is? What is a deist? We know what an atheist is, and we know what an agnostic is. What is a deist? 
Absolutely. That's, you're absolutely correct. So deism is the belief that, yes, God exists. But they believe that God created the world and then left the world and all of its inhabitants to their own devices. And he is not involved in the world. He does not, quote unquote, intervene in world affairs. So this would deny miracles. This would deny anything special about human beings. Uh, Allah, or God in their conception, created this for no apparent reason, no wisdom, and he doesn't get involved. Right? That is deism. So the belief that God exists, but he's not really involved in the world. And, you know, some, uh, many Christians, many Jews, are essentially deists. You know, they hold beliefs, uh, and I can speak particularly to the Christians here. Uh, there are many Christians who are deist in practice, and they hold beliefs that actually take them outside of the fold of Christianity, according to classical Christian theology, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, or whatever. Deism is not compatible with actual Christianity, because Christians don't believe that God just created the world and left it to its own devices and does not get involved, right? But these three together represent the modern conception of religion by many people living in this postmodern world. So it has certain features. Among the features of this modern conception of religion is a belief that, yes, God exists and God created the world and he watches over uh, human life, but he's not particularly involved. He wants us to be good. He wants us to be nice, kind, and fair to each other, as is taught by all of the major world religions, right? That's why in interfaith gatherings, they always like to talk about the golden rule. And they like to talk about how the golden rule is an absolute, a universal shared by all of the world's religions, right? Because that is the highest value in this postmodern conception of religion, just being nice to each other. That's it. They also believe that the main goal in life is to just be happy. Just be happy. And they believe there's no need for God to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. This is what one scholar called uh, viewing God like a vending machine or like Santa Claus. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about these kinds of people, you know. Subhanallah, in the Qur'an, there is not a single belief, not a single idea among people, except that Allah addresses it in the Qur'an. And there are numerous verses in the Qur'an where Allah ta'ala speaks of that attitude of people who, they are completely oblivious to God, but when hard times come, da'awullah, they call upon Allah sincerely, mukhlisina lahu din And then when He saves them, when he delivers them from that tragedy or difficulty, they go back to their ways. Allah addresses that attitude. And they also believe that good people go to heaven when they die. As long as you're a nice guy. If you're nice, it doesn't matter if you're you know, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, whatever you are. As long as you're nice. As long as you observe the golden rule. Then you'll go to heaven. That is the postmodern conception of religion broadly among many people, what some people have coined moralistic, therapeutic deism. So we, of course, as Muslims, contest that. And any genuine Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox Christian would also contest that on the grounds of their own theology. Because religion is not just about being a good person. What, is it, what does it mean to be a good person? Who gets to define what a good person is? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent prophets and messengers to humanity with revelation guiding people to what good actually means. That is the only way of knowing what is good in, in the sense that brings salvation. So this belief in moralistic therapeutic deism is essentially a pragmatic way of looking at things. It is essentially the attitude of someone who says, yeah, religion is fine 
as long as it gives you meaning, as long as it helps you, as long as it makes you feel good. Otherwise, who are we to judge? If you don't want to do religion, fine. As long You do you. You live your truth. You see, it's all couched in this postmodern language that doesn't really believe in absolute truth, that doesn't believe uh, that there is an absolute truth that people are held accountable for. So this is not the position of any major world religion. And I'm limiting that here at least to the Al-Adiyana Samawiyya, right? Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And I don't even believe that's the case for several other religions, although they have different conceptions of the hereafter. Many of them don't have a conception of a deity. So that's another topic for another day. So this is the modern conception that many people have of religion. Now you have a Muslim person who grows up in the West. They don't really latch on to this, but the culture does, and the culture has this insidious effect on the hearts and minds of people over time where they begin to adopt this attitude, right? If you press them, maybe they'll say, yeah, Islam is the only way, but, you know, I think they're, they're going to go to Jannah, you know, because they're just so nice, right? So people get confused. So we want to present the Quranic account on these matters. So having introduced all of this, let us take a look at what our Creator has said, subhanahu wa ta'ala, about these matters. So the first set of verses I want to give you present that Islam is the only valid religion. And there are several verses, but I selected these because they're more or less shorter and, and very, very explicit. We have, for instance, in Surah Ali Imran, a few verses. Indeed, the deen and the sight of Allah is Islam. And right after that, Allah Ta'ala says, the people of the book differed among themselves after knowledge came to them. Whoever rejects the signs of Allah, verily Allah is speedy or swift in judgment. Sari'ul Hisab. Further on in the same chapter, Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَنْ يَبَتَغِ غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينًا فَلَنْ يُقَبَلَ مِنْهُ وَهُوَ فِي الْآخِرَةِ مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ Whoever seeks other than Islam as a deen, it will not be accepted from him. And in the hereafter, he will be among the losers. And in Surah Saf, it is he who sent his messenger with guidance and the true religion, Deen al-Haqq, to make it prevail over all other adyan, or over all other religions, even though the idolaters may dislike it. So the shahid from this verse is that if other religions offer valid paths to salvation now, then why the need to prevail over them? Prevailing here means right? To, to manifest and become clear with proof and evidence and clarity. If they're all the same, if they're all valid paths, why would one need to prevail over the others in the first place? The next set of verses are narrower in that they're talking particularly about the Ahlul Kitab. Now who are the Ahlul Kitab? They are the Jews and the Christians, broadly. Just as Allah Ta'ala addresses all of humanity in the previous verses, in these verses Allah is addressing Ahlul Kitab in particular. In Ali Imran as well, Allah says, O people of the book, why do you reject the revelation of Allah even as you witness? وَأَنْتُمْ تَشْهَدُونَ Right, so Allah is rebuking them for rejecting the revelation of Allah even as they witness that it is truth. So if they could be saved without Islam, why would it be a problem for them to reject 
Because if they follow a particular religion, that religion would have a viewpoint towards other religions, either accepting or rejecting. And they reject. So if they're all valid, why would Allah condemn them for rejecting in the first place? We go to Surah Bayyina, in the last juz of the Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala says, those who disbelieved from Ahlul Kitab and the pagans were not divided until the clear evidence came to them. So here we see Allah Ta'ala ascribes them to kufr, which is rejection, disbelief. And further on in the chapter, Allah says, those who disbelieve among the people of the book and pagans will be in the fire of hell. That's the divine threat. It's very explicit. We have another verse in Ali Imran where Allah Ta'ala talks about the mithaq, the covenant he took from the previous prophets in the Alamul Arwah, in the realm of souls. Allah Ta'ala says, and recall when Allah took an oath from the prophets, I have given you scriptures and wisdom. Now if a messenger comes to you confirming what is with you, you must believe in him and you must give him victory. Do you agree to this and swear to it as binding on you? And they said, we do, we agree. And Allah says, then be witnesses to it and I too am with you among the witnesses. So in that realm of souls, before the physical creation of human beings, the souls of the prophets took a covenant from Allah Ta'ala that if they are alive, when there appears the final messenger, Sayyiduna Muhammad Sallallahu they must profess their iman in him and they must give him aid and victory. And they all acknowledge that. What this means is if the prophets of Allah Ta'ala had to acknowledge and believe in the Prophet Muhammad and follow him, then naturally their followers must also believe in him and follow him too. Because what is the duty of people with respect to their prophets? To obey them, to follow them, to emulate them. So they must do just as their prophets do. So this establishes that this is the only valid path in the sight of Allah Ta'ala. We have more, and I'm, I'm limiting these. There's dozens more. In Surah Al-Nisa, Allah Ta'ala addresses the believers in a very curious verse. O oh, you who believe, believe in Allah. He addressed them with Iman and then commanded them to have Iman. O oh, you who believe, believe in Allah and His Messenger and the book that has been brought down to, the, to, to His Messenger and the books that have been sent down before that. Whoever disbelieves in Allah, his angels, his books, his messengers, and the day of judgment has gone far astray. So if a person is not a Muslim, right, they're rejecting, they don't believe in the Prophet Muhammad right? So this establishes that they are upon kufr, very clearly. We go to Surah Ma'idah, we see the same thing. In Surah Ma'idah, Allah addresses this time Ahlul Kitab. O people of the book, our messenger has come to you clarifying much of what you hide of the scripture and he overlooks much. A light from God has come to you and a book that makes things clear. Through it, Allah guides those who want his pleasure to peaceful paths, subul as-salam, and takes them out of the darkness and into the light by his permission and he guides them to the straight path. Those who say, God is the Messiah, son of Mary, have certainly disbelieved. It's very clear. And in Surah Al-A'raf, Allah Ta'ala tells the Prophet Sallallahu to say, Ya ayyuhal nas, O people, inni Rasulullah ilaykum jami'a, I am the messenger of Allah to you all. Right? So this is a response to the false idea 
that the Prophet ﷺ was only sent to the Arabs. Because believe it or not, there are some people, some Christians and some Jews, who do believe that the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ is a true Prophet and Messenger. They say it. They will say, we believe that he is truthful and he is a Prophet and Messenger sent by God but he was only sent to the Arabs. This is a belief among a subset of Christians and Jews. Not all of them by any means, but it's a belief held by some of them. How do you respond to that? There's a really easy way to respond to that. Well, they would say they agree, but they'll say, but that's only for the Arabs. Yeah, so you just want to engage in a bit of Socratic dialogue with them. You say, okay, that's good. You believe that the Prophet Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. He is a true prophet and messenger. But you believe he's only sent to the Arabs. Okay, but you believe he's a messenger, right? Well, yes. Therefore, you believe that everything he says is truth. Because you just affirmed he's a messenger from Allah, which means by necessity, he speaks the truth in everything he says. And they have to say yes. Because if they don't say yes, then they rejected him. But if they say yes, yes, everything he says is truth, okay, we say the one you believe is a prophet and messenger, that you believe speaks the truth in everything he says, he conveyed from Allah that he was sent to all of humanity and not just the Arabs. So what are you going to do here? You either have to go back and reject him, or you have to say, he wasn't just sent to the Arabs, he was sent to all of humanity, al-Arab al-Ajam. And therefore he's sent to me as well. And I am responsible for believing in him and following his way. That's the end of the conversation. Right? So you see Allah Ta'ala responds to some of these arguments in the Qur'an as well. Now the next uh, point we want to make here is that salvation, najat, rests on that belief in the truthfulness of Sayyidina Muhammad Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Wasallam. Because it's not enough to say a person just believes in God and they don't worship other than God. They have to also affirm the risala of Sayyidina Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In Surah An-Nisa, Allah Ta'ala says, those among them firmly rooted in knowledge and the believers believe in what was revealed to you. These we will bestow an immense reward. So those people from Ahlul Kitab, who are arasikhuna fil ilm, they're firmly grounded in knowledge, they believe in what was revealed to you. Right? It's a requirement. In Surah An-Nur, Allah Ta'ala says, the believers are those who believe in Allah and His messengers. Right? All of them. In Surah Fatih, we find the same thing. It is He who sent His messenger with guidance and the religion of truth to make it prevail over all religions. And as we noted earlier, the shahid of that is, if all religions offer a path to salvation, why would one need to prevail over the others? So these ayat are very clear. Nevertheless, there are certain verses that some people have misunderstood. And they read them and think, based on their faulty understanding, that they say that other people have an open path to salvation outside of Islam, even right now. And there's two main verses. The, the big one is in Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Ta'ala says, those who believe, هَادُوا Who are those people? The Yahud. Here it's translated those who were guided. But Walladina Hadu is the Yahud. Walladina Nasaru. 
and those who were supporters of Christ, Nasara, Christians, and the Sabiyun, the Sabians, who believe in Allah and the last day and act righteously, they will have their reward with their Lord, and they have nothing to fear, and nor will they grieve. So some people read that verse and they say, okay, so it mentions the believers, the Muslims, it mentions the Jews and the Christians and the Sabians. And then Allah says, whoever among them uh, believes in Allah on the last day, and does righteous actions, then they'll have their reward with their Lord, and no fear will come upon them and no grief will they experience. Therefore, they're saved. So on the surface, that's what it seems to indicate. But as we've said so many times before, you have to understand the Qur'an holistically. You can't use one verse that is ambiguous and interpret the clear-cut verses in light of it. You have to use the clear-cut verses to interpret the one that is a little ambiguous. And so we say that this verse, number one, is speaking in the past tense. Right? He doesn't use the noun, Yahud or Nasara. He uses past tense for their actions, their beliefs, and so on. And is pointing to the believers at the time of their prophets, meaning those who believed from the Yahud, the followers of Musa, in the time of Musa or the prophets of Bani Israel. Those who believed in Allah in the last day among the supporters of Jesus Christ during his time, during his era, and the Sabiyun who maintained the practices they received, those people in that period. So it's not talking about every single individual for all times to come. It's speaking about those in the past. Now the reason why this verse was revealed, the sababun nuzul, the circumstance of revelation, is from a question that uh, the Persian Sahabi Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu put regarding the pious monks he encountered before he became a Muslim. He was wondering what is the fate of those individual monks he spent time with who worshipped Allah alone, who believed in Allah in the last day, who were God-fearing, who did good things. What is their fate going to be? What is their status? And so the verse is revealed in that particular context the context of those monks he encountered before he met the Prophet And that's the only possible interpretation. It's the only recourse. Because if you say it's open for everyone, then you have ta'arud, you have a contradiction between this verse and all of the other verses that are sariha, wadiha, clear-cut and explicit. Qat'iyah, ad-dilala. Very definitive in what they indicate. So there can be no contradiction in the Quran. So we reconcile this verse based on those. And we have the full picture, inshaAllah. The other verse is in Ad Imran, where Allah Ta'ala is actually praising some of the Ahlul Kitab when He says, Laysu sawa'a, they're not all alike. Among the Ahlul Kitab is a community that is qa'imah, they're upright. They recite the revelations of Allah throughout the night. وَهُمْ يَسْجُدُونَ And they, they prostrate themselves. Right? So it mentions ten qualities, ten praiseworthy qualities of Ahlul Kitab, or a segment of them. Now this ayah is referring to the Jews and Christians who became Muslim. And that is explained in Surah Al-A'raf. Because in Surah Al-A'raf, Allah describes them in more detail, by saying that they are the ones who follow the messenger, the messenger, the prophet, the unlettered one, whom they find written in the Torah and the Gospel. Those who believe in him and respect him and support him and follow the light that came down with him, they are the successful ones. So this is not speaking in absolutes for anyone who happens to be a Jew or a Christian. It is those Jews and Christians who come to the path of Islam 
and before their path to Islam, they were well on their way seeking that guidance. That's who it's talking about. It's not a generic verse saying that this is the quality of everybody. Right? So, those are the two verses. Uh, when we come to hadith, there's one very explicit hadith. And there's several, but this is the most explicit of them. We have a hadith of Rasulullah in Sahih Muslim. In this hadith, the Messenger of Allah said, By him in whose hand is the life of Muhammad, anyone from this nation, what nation is he talking about? He's talking about, because you know you, there's two ummas, right? You know there's two ummas? The Prophet ﷺ has two nations. You have the ummah of da'wah, meaning the nation that receives the invitation to Islam. And that ummah is all of humanity. And then you have ummatul ijaba, the, the community or nation that responded to that invitation. So when he says, by, the, he, by him in whose hand is the life of Muhammad, Anyone from this nation, a nas, a woman, be they a Jew or a Christian who hears of me and dies without believing in what I have come with, shall be among the inhabitants of hell. Commenting on this hadith, Imam al-Nawawi says in his commentary on Sahih Muslim that this hadith contains a proof that all religions have now been abrogated by the prophethood of our Prophet And now we come to a couple of scholarly statements. And this is just to show that there is also ijma'ah. Now we have clear-cut proof from the Qur'an. We have clear-cut proof from the Sunnah. We have ijma'ah as well. So you have layers of evidence establishing this fact. Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah mentions in Ihya Ulum al-Din that Allah sent the Qurayshi unlettered Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with his divinely inspired message to the entire world Al-Arab wal-Ajam, the Arabs and non-Arabs and Al-Thaqalain, jinn and mankind The Prophet's sacred law has abrogated and superseded all earlier revealed laws except those provisions in them that the new sacred law has reconfirmed. So this sharia that was given to Rasulullah is nasikha. It abrogates and supersedes all the previous dispensations and revealed laws. Now Qadr Iyad, who was before Imam Nawawi's time, but he cited a lot by Nawawi, he cites Ijma'ah. He says there is a consensus about the disbelief of one who does not consider as disbelievers the Christians, Jews, and all those who, uh, who part from the religion of the Muslims or hesitates about their disbelief or doubts it. Yani, this is the critical point. This is not saying that, okay, oh, now you have to go be mean to people. It's not about being mean to anyone. It's about understanding that there is a furqan. There is a criteria between truth and falsehood. There is a tamyiz, a distinction between right and wrong, light and darkness. And you cannot embrace the light and the guidance when you invite the darkness and say that the darkness is also like the light. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean you have to be mean to anybody. You have to be upright and good towards everyone. What it means is that you affirm that this is the only path of salvation, which should, if we understand that, give us some sense of urgency that we should try to make da'wah to people, right? We should try to invite people to Islam. And not just, uh, as some people say, I invite to Islam with my character, but they never actually tell people about Islam. They have co-workers for 20 years, they're really nice to them, but their co-workers have never heard about Islam. But they're really nice to them. You need to be nice to them with character and also try to find some way, maybe do it carefully and work, but you, know, you have to find some way ideally to actually call people to Islam. If 
all religions are valid and acceptable in the sight of Allah. If they're all paths to salvation, why is there da'wah? Why did the Sahaba sacrifice? Why did they migrate? Why did they suffer? Why were they killed in battle? Why were they imprisoned? Why were they tortured? Why did they do anything that they did? If everything's all valid at the end of the day. We have to ask ourselves that. So this is important. And this quote of Qadir Iyad is a very serious one. Because he's saying that it is actually something that takes a person outside of Islam. If they don't consider those of other religions to be upon disbelief, a path that is not leading to salvation, or those who hesitate about their disbelief. Uh, I don't know, maybe, they, maybe they're okay. You know, maybe they're all going to Jannah, for all I, all I know. Or they doubt it, they're not sure. This is, this is serious, because what it entails is a denial of the clear-cut verses in the Qur'an where Allah establishes beyond a, a shred of doubt that Islam is the only valid path of salvation, right? So there's a lot to be said about this, but this is the basic way we should look at it. And I believe it's fardain for everyone to know this in some measure of detail, specifically in this day and age, when there are lots of weird ideas floating out there that want to, you know, it's a kind of everyone, let's hold hands, kumbaya, we're all good, I'm good, you're good, we're all, we're all as long as we're nice to each other, we're all going to go to heaven. Right? That is a very modern conception. Christians didn't believe that a hundred years ago. Other religions didn't believe that. Right? It's a very modern conception based on the postmodern ideas that there is no absolute truth and because we have to get along we just we'll, we'll just all say we're all okay right there's a lot of history behind why this idea caught on because of europe's very unique historic position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, christianity catholics and the protestants and towards the muslims and the religious infighting and the wars that took place you know, there's a history as to why those ideas took root. But we, just because they had those problems doesn't mean we should embrace the ideas that emerged because of those problems and thereby water our religion down and believe that everybody's okay, right? So further reading, I think this is the first time I've done this. If you want to read further on this, I would uh, suggest you uh, visit these two resources. Uh, the first one is uh, it's a brief paper that basically collects all of these primary evidences from the Qur'an and the Hadith. The second one is called The Last Trump Card, uh, and this was written before Trump, so it has no relation to the former president. The Last Trump Card, Islam and the Supersession of Other Faiths. And this is written by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, a very able scholar who writes with a... Uh, you know, very beautiful, academic, rigorous style, and he explores this issue in some detail. Uh, these are the two best things I've come across for a more detailed discussion on this matter. Hada wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? Yeah, with regards to the ayah in Surah Al-Imran, where Allah mentions the covenant taken from the prophets, all of them, that if they find themselves alive when the final messenger appears, that they believe in him and support him, there is a lot to be said about that verse. What you have said, that it's an indication to the, their followers who come after them that they too should follow in their footsteps, 
that is, scholars note that point, that this is uh, indicating to the followers of those prophets, uh, it's as if it's saying, just as they took a covenant that they would follow him and profess iman in him, if you claim to be followers of those prophets, and you find yourselves alive during that time, as true followers of those prophets, you should follow suit and do exactly what they did, even before they were given the physical existence, when they were in the realm of souls. And that is to have iman and support that final prophet. That is a, that's the, the basic interpretation of the verse, what you, what you were mentioning. There is a deeper one that I didn't intend to go into, but I find it quite profound. And that is, when the covenant is taken from those previous prophets in the realm of souls, that they will follow and profess their iman in Rasulullah Allah Ta'ala has established the prophets as their own community, a community unto themselves, and placed at the top of that hierarchy as their sultan, as their amir, as their imam, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So he is imamul anbiya'i wal mursaleen. And because of this, we're going deeper than I wanted to, but this is, I find it really beautiful. Right? If it goes over your head, alhamdulillah, no problem. Right? You don't have to. Some of the ulama say that this establishes that because they are like nuwab, they're like representatives of the Prophet during their own respective times on the earth, because they appear before him temporally, but they took the covenant that they are under his authority because he is their sultan. Some of the ulama say that this means that in each of the Prophet's respective missions on this earth, they were acting as deputies of the Prophet because they looked to him as their leader. If you take that further, it actually means, according to some, that even their previous shara'ir, their previous laws, are laws ascribed to the Prophet Muhammad except now they're abrogated. But they're still ascribed to him. Insofar as those were prophets with a law, with a scripture, and because they were under his leadership based on the covenant, they're in a sense representing him. So in the sense that sharia they have is uh, still ascribed to him indirectly. That's, no, it's not required for someone to believe that. That's, this is from those ulama who really go deep in exploring some of the more subtle aspects of the Quranic message and what's, what's implied there as it establishes that the prophets are their own community and they're not a leaderless group. They have a leader at their helm and that leader is Sayyidina Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wallahu alam. I was listening to a talk and I might have misinterpreted it. But the speaker is a learned person telling that most helpful words in the Quran as for some of the people is what a person will eat that will take up a person. And based on that, like maybe like not as far fetched on my part that every Prophet Muhammad did not have his tribe until like all of the people of his ummah are going to escape from hell, like maybe it's certain suspension plans, like eventually that like all sorts back on. Well, it's, it's the, I wouldn't say it's a bad thought. It's the kind of thought that one should ask about to get clarity on, as you just did. Uh, the short answer is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed in the Qur'an, and it has been revealed in the, the wahi, in the sunnah, in the words of the Prophet sallallahu that no soul will enter Jannah except one that is purified. And Allah Ta'ala has also informed the Prophet and us that all sins are forgivable except one. And that is the sin of associating partners with Allah Ta'ala, shirk. So if a person dies with shirk, without making repentance, then that sin is actually not forgiven and the consequence of that is وَالْعِيَاذُ billah hellfire. So 
in, in connection with the verse in Surah Duha, وَلَسَوْفَ يُعْطِيكَ رَبُّكَ فَتَرْضَى Your Lord will certainly give you and you will be satisfied. The narrations we have uh, that speak about this verse uh, speak about the shafa'ah, the Prophet's intercession for his ummah, right? The ummah of Ijaba, those who did not commit shirk. Anyone from the Ashab al-Kaba'ir, the people who committed major sins, who are facing problems in the hereafter, uh, interceding for them, to either not go to hellfire or to get out if they're being punished temporarily. As far as him not being satisfied until everyone, including the idol worshippers, this would be far-fetched for one simple reason. The Prophet ﷺ says, I am the most knowledgeable of you concerning Allah. And the adab of the Prophet ﷺ with his Lord is too great to know the divine statement regarding the fate of people who die upon shirk and then not being satisfied with that. Right? This is what we would call, uh, we could call it i'tidaf al dua, right? Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, uh, Call upon your Lord with humility and submissiveness. Indeed, he does not love the transgressors. And transgressing here means i'tida, uh, transgressing in the act of dua. And the scholars say that transgressing in the act of dua, one of the examples is asking for things that Allah Ta'ala has informed you are not going to happen. Right? So like, let's talk about uh, Abu Lahab. What has Allah said about Abu Lahab? Tabbat yada Abi Lahabin watab. Allah has revealed that he is condemned to the hellfire. So it would be bad adab. It would be i'tida, transgressing in dua for anyone, not just the Prophet wasallam, anyone to raise their hands in dua and say, Oh Allah, take Abu Lahab out of hellfire. That's bad adab. That's transgressing in dua. Because the person is essentially asking Allah to go against what he has said is going to happen as a matter of fact. So that would be the short answer. As for him not being satisfied while any of the believers remain in hell, that is because he has the knowledge that none of them remain there forever. And he knows that they eventually come out. So he asks Allah to get them out because of his care and concern for them, knowing that they're going to come out anyway. So that's not transgressing in dua at all. That's asking for what he already knows Allah has promised. But he's asking for it to be hastened to make it, you know, make it easy because of his love for the ummah. Does that answer make sense? Alhamdulillah. Okay, wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam.